the latest podcast of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. Um, I'm Vicky Riley. I'm Christian Kerr. And we're still travelling along the highways and byways of Scottish literature, winding our way um, and introducing you to the best of Scottish writing. Though at the end of August, we must admit, both of us, to post-festival lurgy. And weariness. And weariness, (laughs) yes. Um, So we hope that we'll make some sense today, um, but I don't want to guarantee it, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Our sponsors, Berlin were thoroughly represented at the amazing Edinburgh International Book Festival. So I think you can forgive us for our weary bones. (laughs) Please do. Um, Today we're looking at Emma Tennant, um, a hugely prolific writer in the late 20th century and one who's probably not been so much in the spotlight in this 21st century. Mm. Um, She's always been an author I've wanted to get into. She's been a name that's been in the back of my head for, for a while. And so with her um, sad death uh, in early 2017 and starting this podcast, um, now is that time. She was one of the names that I had right at the beginning. I thought, let's do, let's yeah, do the name of one. she's completely new to me. Yeah. So um, we'll be looking at her reworking of the Robert Louis Stevenson classic, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which she adapted or reimagined into her Two Women of London. And then we'll be sticking with reimaginations of Stevenson as we go to Sterling to talk to our very own Kevin McNeil, who himself took on Stevenson's iconic story in his second novel, A Method Actor's Guide to Jekyll and Hyde. Which, if you've not read it yet, rectify, rectify. (laughs) (laughs) He has also... Just edited an anthology of Robert Louis Stevenson, an anthology that was planned but never published Mm. in the 1960s by Jorge Luis Borges and (laughs) Adolfo Vioy Casares. Well done on the pronunciation. This is really, this is uh, just like this kind of wonderful metafictional exercise. Mm. Uh, Kevin will talk more about that in the second half of the podcast anyway we're delighted to have launched that at the book festival Mm. earlier this month so back to emma tennant um and like previous stars of this podcast such as you know ian crichton smith or naomi mitchison she was exceptionally prolific and also like those two she has, she's not got the same profile as a lot of other classic mm-hmm. Scottish writers. And I wonder if it's the fact that she was so prolific, the sheer volume of output that all those writers have in common, has the detrimental effect on the writer's legacy. Because, um, I don't know, is it like people don't trust a writer that can keep producing like that? They have to like slave for years on a particular book? or I mean, I know that she was ill for a significant part of her later life, but... I can only find a few of her books available on Amazon and they're by different publishers and they've got covers that look like they've not been refreshed for a while, which suggests that, you know, they're There's not really so backless. Yeah. yeah. And and her most celebrated works, which, you know, uh, Two Women of London is and The Bad Sister, I mean, they're, they're only available on Faber Fines. And so I just think, why is she still not massively in print in a similar way that... 
Angela Carter or Muriel Spark or Margaret Atwood are, who, I mean, whose company she could easily keep with the way she writes? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and um, sometimes I think maybe it's to do with volume. Yeah, like, I don't... I... People can't read all of them, so none of them stand out, or people's interest is sort of dissipated across the work. It's also a sense sometimes that someone who's extremely productive is like just churning it out. Like someone who's incredibly productive isn't usually thought of as writing literary, like high yeah. literary fiction. But Can it might just, just be, might just be that they're extremely efficient. Yeah, and hyper-imaginative and hyper-productive. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, you know, literary value can sort of inhere around rarity, if a life is cut short, and then I think, yeah, as you said, we totally prize the idea of a long laboured over masterpiece mm. um, and then so much of it has to do with economics whether a market can support whether the market can like support the reprinting of yeah I think her publisher should get on it though I mean she did die this year that's like yeah a moment a, yeah the moment to you know introduce the reassessment mm. and I guess so if she's spread over a load of different publishers maybe it's mm. more difficult yeah Emma Tennant um, in the case of her life, it seems that questions of productivity and literary reputation and originality are all mm. operating there. Yeah. Um, she was born in 1937 in London, um, and she comes from aristocratic stock. She's the daughter of Christopher Gray Tennant, the second Baron Glen Connor, and Elizabeth, <laughs> Lady Glen Connor. She spent most of her childhood in a gothic mansion in the borders yeah sort of 19th century baronial <laughs> style thing um after after she was educated in london oxford and paris she worked in journalism and she wrote for queen hey he's reading the queen <laughs> oh okay and then but then funnily enough then john lennon says that's an in joke you know <laughs> <laughs> that's good she wrote her first novel, The Colour of Rain, at the age of 26 and submitted it and under a pseudonym to the Spanish Preformentor. Yeah, what, I, what? I don't know if that's that that right. Yeah, I don't know. But one of the judges at that time was the Italian novelist Albert Moravia and he, you know, tossed it aside supposedly. I mean, this is according to Emma Tennant herself that he practically threw it in the bucket and said, this book stands for decadence of British contemporary culture, which, you know, that actually makes me want to read it. <laughs> but um, it really got to her and she didn't write fiction again until the mid-70s. But then, so thankfully she, did, she, you know, she got over that. <laughs> and then there was no stopping her. And she confessed later in life that she actually, like Naomi Mitchison, she had no idea how many books she had written in her life. Um, many of which deal with um, what we'll probably be talking about today is that feminist themes, the cultural decay of Britain, all sort of wrapped up with magic and fantasy and gothic horror and just great imagination. Yeah, and like um, exposing the sort of darker underpinnings mm. of sometimes, you know, archetypal narrative. Yeah, she's probably best known for re her reimagining of classics. She turned to to um, previous works of literature a lot in her um, writing career. So as well as books like Two Women of London, which, you know, as we say, take on Robert Louis Stevenson, she did The Bad Sister, which is probably probably her best known work, I'd say, which is a reworking of James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Um, she reworked 
uh, Austin's Pride and Prejudice with Pemberley. She reworked Henry James's Turn of the Screw with the Beautiful Child. There's a whole list. She did Heart, like, there's so many. Um, and she kind of received a bit of criticism later on for all those reworkings, as if, you know, not coming up with a original inverted commas story meant that she had no real imagination, which is a very, very stingy, cheap shot to me. I mean, if just read the books and you'll see that that she she absolutely does i mean and it's all and also it's not as if the history of literature or or of all art isn't carried through through the call and response between artists through the ages so i mean i've only read two of her books so far the bad, bad sister and uh, two in of london but both of them are so thoroughly modern and have a different energy different uh, take on the themes, takes them somewhere else and and has that imaginative, magic, otherworldly and yet totally resonating monstrousness about them that, well, you know shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that snottiness about retelling stories is misplaced yeah. uh, some of the most praised and anticipated novels of this year yeah. are retellings um, I'm particularly interested in The Clutch that are uh, retellings of classics yeah. um, Colm Toybean's House of Names yeah. um, retells Aeschylus's Oresteia as a novel, Camilla Shamsi long-listed for the booker yeah, yeah. is retelling Sophocles' Antigone and it's not as if those Greek plays were original either I know or Shakespeare or I mean just shut up <laughs> retelling a story particularly an archetypal story that's sort of like entered common yeah. parlance yeah as a thing a meme <laughs> um, oh god <laughs> uh, you know such as Jekyll and Hyde or a Greek myth um, by you know retelling it by setting it in a different time or place uh, amplifies certain aspects mm. of that original work. Yeah. And one of the questions is, you know, can you enjoy that work as much without knowing a previous version? Yeah. Um, as a reader, you get a kind of thrill of recognition when you're mm. holding both the original and the update in your mind. Yeah. But that's not to say that the story or a character isn't engaging in its own right when mm. the retelling is well done. Like, I certainly saw Clueless and loved it before I'd even touched an Austen novel. And often retellings allow artists, whether they're authors or filmmakers, and so many films are adaptations, mm. um, to produce really intricate and excellent work. Something that's both a commentary on its time and, yeah. and it's a commentary on time and timelessness. And then like on a totally meta level, it's it's about the strategies of art in general. Yeah. And I think that Emma Tennant really does all of those things in Two Women of London. Totally, totally. I mean, it was published in 1989 and it's set in that period as well. Well, it's sort of summer 1988. So instead of the 19th century London of um, Jekyll and Hyde, we're transported to London of the Thatcherite 80s. Um, there's even a mention by the editor of loads of money <laughs> in there. Um, and we're, you know, placed in this gentrifying Ladbur Ladbroke Grove area. And a body is found in the private but communal gardens of Rudyard and Nightingale Crescent. And it seems clear um, from the off that it is the hag, the outcast Mrs Hyde, who has committed the, the murder. And it seems that she committed it as an act of vengeance because it, it's thought that the victim 
is actually a serial rapist who's been terrorising the, the area for a while. Because the hub of this neighbourhood is this boarding house, women's club, that's run by the wonderfully talkative and sometimes gossipy Rubina Sandal. <laughs> and so after this dramatic scene-setting incident, uh, there's an editor's introduction yeah. uh, where, where we're told that the editor's primary concern in collating the evidence we're about to read is to discover why a Dr. Francis Crane, a neighbour of Robina Sandal and a regular guest to her club, suddenly took ill and died. And it's a fair conjecture that Francis Crane's death is connected with the events that lead up to the murder. Yeah. Um, then after that, there's a cast list. <laughs> yeah. Like a drama- real dramatis persona. <laughs> yeah. Um, containing sketches of friends and neighbours of Rubina. Um, and they include uh, the beautiful and generous art gallery manager, Eliza Jekyll. Obviously. Controversial feminist artist, Mara Kaletsky. Mm-hmm. And their mutual friend, Jean Hasty, a solicitor visiting London from Scotland on an academic research trip. Yeah. The book then unfolds as a series of chapters of evidence that confirms Francis Crane's involvement with the protagonists, um, reveals the true nature of Mrs. Hyde, and combines all of this with another revelation in the end about who was murdered. But, well, Lee, I mean, you know the story of Jekyll and Hyde, mm. but you don't know that part, so we'll, we'll not... We'll Spoil it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's one new thing that you can learn. <laughs> but the first thing that really struck me um, on reading... Um, Two Women of London is was just how modern it is. Like it, it, it could have been released in two thousand and seventeen, <laughs> yeah. um, and even though it was published in the late eighties, it reminded me a lot, particularly um, its political element of the similar revel- relevance that we found in Trainspotting in our earlier podcast. The the book's questioning still what gentrification means and what it does to neighbourhoods and um, the Gulf that's created between the wealthy and the poor, the demonisation of the underclass, particularly with the character of Mrs Hyde, who you never actually... You don't really hear her talk very much, Mm -hmm. really, until the end-ish. But she's talked about a lot, and she's, you know, she's a slattern, she's an absent mother, she's neglectful, she's abusive of her children, she's betting on horses, she's transgressive, she's... Prilling about her garden, wearing a transparent cagoule, showing all all her bits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for someone who doesn't speak, she's certainly judged yeah. a lot by so, all the other characters. Yeah, and and there is that element of, you know, when a place because she was there first, and then it started to get gentrified, and yeah. you know, people they they speak in sympathetic terms, kind of, but yeah. mostly it's very judgmental. Not very nice. And there's a very prescient passage at the near the end of the book where Eliza Jekyll stroke Mrs. Hyde, that's not too much of a spoiler, <laughs> is talking about the poor poor and the rich poor. I mean, it's certainly really uncomfortable. This feeling of discomfort p- pervades the neighbourhood. Mm. Um, the t- and Mrs. Hyde is the sort of lightning rod for, yeah. for that. Um, and Tennant really describes it quite bitingly. I mean, this book is, has a satirical slant to it. But so much of this book is about how close people live to each other. Mm. Um, and everything's like mapped out quite precisely in terms of sort of spatial proximity. What floor of the boarding house they're on? What can they see from there? Yeah. You know? But also it's very 
very layered, like they're on top of each other all yeah. the time. Even in this gentrifying place. Right, which is sort of stratified. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the crummy muse houses are really close to the stucco crescent. Mm. Um, and there's a real sense of anxiety and paranoia running throughout the book that people are living on the edge economically. The city is a tinderbox waiting to catch fire. Which, hello, 2017, you right. know, it's just so, so um, today. Uh, but this also comes from the book's sort of relentless and deliberate focus on women's lives in this society. Mm, in and I, I think that's really interesting because um, you just sort of think, well, does it always have to be hysterical? Yeah. You know, <laughs> can't women get along too? Um, but, um, you know, this and, and, and by f- this relentless focus on women's lives um, is really Tennant's most important departure from Stevenson mm. um, and um, it really accentuates the absence of female female characters in Jekyll and Hyde <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah she's placing the story within 1980s feminism and there's and there's lots of politics in the arguments between a lot of the, the, the characters about the different waves of fem- feminism and the different ways to be a feminist which again is really contemporary um, the conversation that the women have about Eliza Jekyll after Mara's disastrous exhibition opening could be taken out of um, social media spats today, you know? It even uses some, some of the same terminology. Like, yeah. I'll read a section from page 191, but there's, all, um, there's also a section where... Eliza's referred to as a snake, which, you know, just reminded me of Taylor Taylor Swift. Swift. (laughs) Anyway, so this is is a conversation that they had after the exhibition. Eliza is the kind of woman who gives women a bad name, Mara said. She was perched by now on the leather top of the fender. Monica Purvis's black, expensive-looking lace-ups crossed beside her. She's the kind of woman who believes she is a post-feminist, whatever that means. Except I'll tell you what it means. Getting what you want in the old way while pretending you care for equality and other old-fashioned concept. A think, in other words. And so things get heated between them all and, um, you know, they, they start talking about Eliza Jekyll's um, charitable uh, doings with the local homeless women's trust and legacy for the homeless and how she means well... Um, and that the children round about her love her. And then Mara replies back, soon you'll be telling me she's running a green investment trust where the rich can put their money in wildflowers or butterflies or something, Mara snapped at the stockbroker. Capitalism is the cause of Eliza Jekyll's prosperity, and capitalism will continue to bring her prosperity while others starve. Yeah, so intersectionality. Exactly. I mean, these conversations are still going on. Yeah. Um, and so it really so with these continuing conversations about what kind of women, uh, what kind of woman Eliza is, and what kind of woman they want to be, because certainly Jean Hasty has those conversations with herself as well about whether she wants to be involved in feminism or whether she just wants to well, you know, whether, be a, like how it, how good it is for her children, yeah, uh-huh. for her to work. So it demonstrates that sort of splitters people's front of Judea aspect to feminism. But the whole book, it's done in a, you know, so that's the sort of nod and wink and satirical thing. But the whole book is really an exploration 
on what a violent consumerist world expects or demands of women. And, you know, we talked about the cast list at the, the very beginning of the book. And to have that cast list really only highlights that, that how much that the aspect of how women are performing their lives rather than really living them and the archetypes they're expected to play and how that performance itself is what breeds that very splitters aspect of feminism. You know, you take seriously the role you've chosen, you invest yourself a whole lot in it. So, of course, different points of view questions your choice of role, questions your own very identity, which is why I think the, the Twitter spats and all the, 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 the really quite um, angry discussion online is so angry because every kind of disagreement feels so personal because the role it's identity that, politics yeah you've got a role and and you create yourself from that role yeah. and to the two women of london just highlights how dangerous that can be mm, absolutely and i think it's interesting that you know uh, splitters is the word <laughs> here um, because um, you know just to go back to the 19th century <laughs> again um, well, Stevenson's book yeah. is about the professional lives of men mm. and um, it's about um, you know the Victorian preoccupation about or around professionalization mm. and on how, how your profession becomes an index of your character yeah so and what do you do <laughs> yeah exactly um and in that book you've got male lawyers and mm. male doctors um dr jekyll is so concerned mm. about the um disjunction between his public persona and his private nature and yeah. how they affect each other how yeah. they constantly are sort of shifting and relating um, to the point that I think people aren't able to themselves mm. separate the two things. Yeah. Um, and I think the novel is quite a lot about the stress of that. Mm. Um, and um, and then also in relation to this sort of prof- this professional question um, about lawyers and doctors, both the 19th and 20th century books, uh, both Stevenson and Tennant, um, they're questioning or the whole plot hangs on the effect of drugs on personality mm, yeah. you know and how you can medical medicalize the person the the doctor and the lawyer are female because progress yeah. um <laughs> but uh their profession is still an index of their character yeah um and it's essential to the plot yeah um interestingly i think that Tennant makes a neat twist by um, having Mara as a feminist artist yeah. um, because that's all about locating point of view you know with the video camera she, and her politics yeah. and what have you and I don't think Stevenson does anything quite so um, like technologically adroit she can observe and comment in a way that artists can yeah because well that I mean, that's their job, really. Right. And also, so I think that, you know, her versions of the story are not straight telling. No, no. You know, yeah. like, she's a particular, particular kind of unreliable, uh, unreliable narrator. But neither's the editor as well, you know. Yeah. You know, we, we are told of this video evidence, but it's not just presented as in this is what happens. The editor is also commenting 
on the evidence. Mm. So so it's it's also and again like Hogg, like Graham McCrae Burnett, it's it's a, an exploration of who gets to tell the story, therefore actually defines what story is told. It's not made clear if the editor is a man or a woman. So is it important whether we know for sure if it is a male character that is the editor or a female character who's the editor? What does it say that I actually assumed the editor was a man? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence on this one um, because as I was reading the book, I really did assume that the editor was female just because everything was mm. so female in 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 the in the narrative you know everyone the, I assumed the editor was female because everyone else was and I couldn't really imagine a man like chumming around in this environment that was so oh, no, incredible I, I you thought, know but maybe he is the sort of you know the the because I thought that would again would be another piece of satire and layer that Emma Tennant would add that it's ostensibly about women and women getting to tell their own stories, but actually, in the end, the whole it's thing the, is told this by this editor a man. man is still the one that tells the story. Yeah, and defines and absolutely. The story. So you know, when I come to think about it, I have another theory. All right, um, and um, I find this more persuasive um, <laughs> than my instinct, of course. <laughs> um, and that comes from the title of the book, um, which. Uh, is, a, I think, a sort of nod to Stevenson's context, like this 19th century context. The book is called Two Women of London. Mm. It's not called The Two Women of London. That's right. Um, and I think that the absence of the the makes the book into a, a sort of, like, 19th century ethnography. Um, like, rather than being the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is, like, a really singular yeah. incident, you know, it's clearly demarcated. Yeah, it's in right? this context, and that is it. And this weirdness, yeah. right? Um, in in Emma Tennant's version, these are two women could in be. in a very general sense. You know, yeah, they could be any two women, as if their situation isn't really strange at all. Well, and this kind of splitting and oscillation between two poles could happen to anyone, <laughs> and perhaps is happening to everyone all yeah, the time. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, um, and like those kind of nineteenth-century ethnographies were almost always written by men, um, and they brought this professionalized and therefore often condescending view to the mm. things they were writing about, which were often women and um, the people that they thought of as the underclass. There are yeah, all these e- books about the poor. Yeah, and there's even a bit in Two Women of London where is it is it Jean Hasty um, talks about. You know the the old Victorian pictures of seemingly yes. mad women. You know, like your is it Charcot, the the French guy who used to like oh yeah take pictures of women yes. in asylums who were put yeah. in there for supposed madness, but. Right. <laughs> and, you know, Jean Hasty is doing, like, everything is, is doing research into original sin and how the early Christians conceived of original sin and whether mm. it was gendered or not. And, but then also, like, whether if you believe that you're living in a fallen world, you're going to be bad anyway. Yeah. So, you know, so much of how we think of personality is like, sort of interrogated by this religious background that we've been tracking through Scottish literature (laughs) (laughs) um, over the past few months. You know, all of this just really seems to be a a sort of uncanny foreshadowing of what we call domestic noir. Yeah, gone girl. 
Yeah, totally. Jean yeah. Hasty yeah. is probably a little bit of a 1980s Amazing Amy. <laughs> <laughs> in Stirling, the beautiful town of Stirling, with Kevin McNeil. And as we are talking about Robert Louis Stevenson in a roundabout way, we thought we'd talk to Kevin McNeil about his second novel, A Method Actor's Guide to Jekyll and Hyde, which is another reimagining of um, Stevenson's classic tale. So hello, Kevin. Hi, Vicky and Christian. <laughs> um, we thought we'd start off just by, you know, um, reminding us of the wonder that is your Method Actor's Guide to Jekyll and Hyde. To, for those who haven't read it yet, could you tell us a little bit about what the how you've reimagined the tale? Well, I'm a huge fan of Robert Louis Stevenson and Jekyll and Hyde, which was obviously Stevenson's breakthrough success, is, I think, one of the most archetypal stories in Western literature, and that's one of the reasons it's been so successful. And I've always been quietly proud that it's a Scottish mm. novel, and I love the themes it looks at. But I also slightly disagree with some of the ideas in it, <laughs> uh, that's a terribly bold thing to say but <laughs> I think what I wanted to do was not rewrite Jekyll and Hyde but offer a contemporary response to mm. it so that one of the things that I'm interested in as a human being and therefore as a writer is the nature of identity and the fluidity of identity mm. and uh, Jekyll and Hyde is a much more nuanced story than people sometimes realise it's not a novel about good and evil because in Stevenson's original Dr Jekyll is not 100% good mm. he's human he's got a flawed past yeah. which is hinted at whereas Hyde is the kind of really dark uncontrollable aspect of perhaps the, the, the darker part of the human psyche and what I was interested in was looking at this idea that the self is very fluid the reason I called it a method actor's guide to Jekyll and Hyde is that I was thinking about similarities between how we as writers create characters and kind of inhabit them mm. and have to believe in them if we want readers to believe in them. Mm, yeah. And it's a bit like method acting where you have to sort of give up yourself and become somebody else mm. and, and do so convincingly. So I wrote this novel about how we have layers of identity and so it's a very layered kind of novel. It's got an unusual structure. And I wrote it somewhat in the way that I would write a poem, whereby if you read it a second time or a third time, different ideas come through. Yeah. And where I differed from Stevenson is Stevens... Well, there's a few ways. One is that Stevenson's original is a very male-dominated book. Mm -hmm. There are no meaningful female characters in strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I think that's a bit problematic, especially nowadays. So I wanted to, as, as it were, rectify that. But I also wanted to look at this idea that Stevenson says, um, truly man is not one, but two. Yeah. Uh, I think we're not divided in two. I think mm. we're multiples. Yeah. But behind all that multiplicity is unity, not duality. Mm. So that's a big, big difference between Stevenson's idea. But that's what I wanted to say. Uh, in, in my own novel. And I wanted to look at layers of consciousness as well and how our experience of life changes as we change, mm. as we go through time. And also the way that we experience reality is something I wanted to look at because 
Um, one of the reasons I think that we can account for the success of Jekyll and Hyde is not just that it's this archetypal story about the human condition, which it is, and that's one of the reasons it's so successful. Yeah. But where did that story originate? It originated in a dream that Stevenson had. Mm. And Stevenson, he wrote a, 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 an essay called A Chapter on Dreams, which is very good about, on this kind of subject. Um, but he, he, this came from, from a dream. And I think there's something about the dreaming mind and the way that the unconscious will filter through because we only know the unconscious mind through reflection, through a kind of second-hand experience, precisely because we're unconscious of it. Uh, but he had this dream, and I think that accounts for one of the reasons that, it, that people respond very well to the story. And Jekyll and Hyde is the third most filmed story of all time. Really? Yeah. What are the first two? Do we know yeah. the first two? I think I can't remember, but I think the first one is Dracula. Ah. Right. Now here's an interesting Dracula thing. Dracula and Frankenstein. Dracula. Well, yeah. Dracula, Frankenstein, and Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. What do they all have in common? All of them began as a dream. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So, how do we experience dream versus waking reality, mm. or versus daydreams? How does the imagination factor in all this, and why? These are aspects that, as fiction writers, I think we have to, we have to examine. Um, so I've always had this kind of, like, like many people, I've always had this kind of fascination with, with, with Jekyll and Hyde, and I just wanted to explore the themes, but in a very different way. Uh, another difference is that Stevenson's original is ostensibly set in London, but yeah. I think it's a very Edinburgh kind of London. <laughs> Absolutely, I think that's a really great corrective. Yeah, <laughs> and Edinburgh is such a divided city, as we know, old town and new town and so forth. So I set my novel in Edinburgh, and for me, places, character. so I wanted to make Edinburgh, with all its contradictions, very much part of, of the novel, not just as a setting, mm. but to offer something of the atmosphere and character of of the either Edinburgh or Scottish or human psyche. Yeah. And were you at any point daunted by the thought of taking on such a iconic tale, an iconic novel? Well, somewhat, but I don't think you can allow yourself to be overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's a bit like when you write a first draft of something, you've got to switch the internal critic off mm. and trust the tale and trust the characters and, and let it evolve rather than becoming constrained because if you're constrained then you might not do justice to your own work far less the work that you're alluding to mm. and I think we're allowed to do it because um, so many great writers have done this in the past and Stevenson himself was open to influence yeah. either for for example in a story like The Bottle Imp which he based on an extant story or we can um, we can think about the fact that you know everything is narrative. Everything comes down to narrative, and sometimes it's a question of interpretation. Um, and I think that's another reason Jekyll and Hyde is so lastingly popular. It's open to a wide variety of types of interpretation. There are those people who think uh, that it's about sexuality, and that's one reason why women are. Play such a minor role, and mm. the men tend to be bachelors, and so on. It could be about this idea of um, the evolved 
man versus the primitive yeah. man, as it were. Um, I don't know if I'm convinced by that. The interpretation that I favour, and I think there's a really strong case to be made for this, but I'm not, I'm not calling it a definitive interpretation because I don't think there is a definitive one. Um, but I think it's about addiction. This mm. is about somebody who takes a drug and then the drug takes them. Yeah. He, he loses control. He does things he wouldn't want to do, says things he wouldn't want to say ordinarily, and then it starts to take him over completely. Mm. So I think it's a sort of parable about drug addiction or alcohol addiction. And alcohol yeah. is mentioned quite a few times in the novella. Mm. Um, so it's more than this kind of shilling shocker detective story. The, the, the readership that got the most out of Jekyll and Hyde by a long, long way is the original audience who did not know the ending. Mm. I meet so many people who haven't read the novella, but they know the story yeah. and they know they know it from film versions. <laughs> See, I know it from the Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes version. Or the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my first encounter with the Jekyll. But this is the thing, it's spoiled for us. We all know the we all know the ending. Yeah. And um for the original audience who read it, they didn't know that and that's it was, mm. you know, this big, big, big shock. Um, and this idea of, of of duality, there's all kinds of weird reflections in real life. For example, when Stevenson first wrote this down, he'd been having this nightmare, and his I think his wife maybe woke him up, or at any rate, he 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 wrote the original manuscript, which we don't have in three days, in this white hot mm. fury of of um, inspiration, um, catalyzed by this dream or nightmare. But when he read it to his uh, wife and son... Yeah, I think I've heard this story. Yeah, his wife said, no, you've, you've missed the, the kind of allegorical deeper meaning. And Stevenson flew into a rage. He was really, really angry. He was yeah. really hurt and upset. Did he not throw it into the fire? He did. Well, he went back and he said to his wife, whether, through, whether this was honest or petulant behaviour, we don't know, but... He basically said, OK, you know what, you're right, you are right. And he threw it into the fire yeah. and then rewrote it. So we don't know what the original mm. narrative was. <sighs> but but from the very beginning, there's duality. There's the non-existent script and there's yes. the, the other script. <laughs> it's all duality. Everything is, you know, you can split it into two. And everything within the novel, often it's two characters mm. working against each other. And even innocent-seeming things in the narrative, like salt which is, you know, as often a symbol of purity or purification, yeah. harmlessness, is part of this kind of recipe that makes makes for this Yeah, well, and in the, in the beginning, he, uh, Jekyll, sorry, yes, Jekyll, <laughs> thinks that uh, he's got this very pure, he's been taking a pure drug. Yeah. And as he, dis, as he finds, as his addiction, I think I absolutely agree with you that I think it's about chemical addiction and alteration and it seems like Emma Tennant brings that yeah, out uh-huh. um, in her 1980s, 80s, 80s update yeah. um, where she's talking about medicalising mental health mental health mm. yeah mm. Um, that uh, Jekyll eventually realises that the drug he's been taking has actually been impure yeah rather than pure it's a great it's a great move on Stevenson's part I think yeah. as a writer it's very very clever um, some people have, have pointed out the fact that it's quite sparse in its details. It's a novella. Mm. So I, I think there are a few reasons for that. Some people have viewed that in a critical manner, um, as a negative, but I actually quite like that. I think the fact that we're given relatively few details means that Stevenson's very 
careful about the the words that he does use and the details mm-hmm. he does give. For example, he talks about a volume of dry divinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, every word is loaded. Um, for another thing, it's a, it's a novella. It's supposed to be condensed and intense. Well, we were talking about um, the, the disappeared manuscript, the manuscript that didn't exist of the original Jekyll and Hyde, but you've also been um, working with the anthology that didn't exist as well. You've 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 gone back to Stevenson this year for your your a new book that you've released just this month, um, and it's an anthology of Robert Louis Louis Stevenson's work that was selected by Borges and Cesares. Yeah, I mean this is a book. Um, I'm really really pleased to bring this book out. This is a book that was conceived before I was born. <laughs> it was conceived in the late 1960s by two geniuses of Argent. Tina's literary heritage, Jorge Luis Borges, who I think was, he's one of my literary heroes, and his great friend Adolfo Bioy Casares. They, but especially Borges, were huge fans of Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm. Borges used to say he considered Stevenson a personal friend, even though Stevenson died before Borges was born. And there are some strange parallels between Stevenson's life and Borges's life. Um, they were both great readers and lovers of stories from a young age. They both had physical infirmities to deal with. Mm. Stevenson obviously was very unwell through childhood and and he died young. Borges uh, became blind in his 50s, as he suspected he would. Uh, They both wrote on similar themes, including doubling duality, um, contradictory aspects of identity, eternity. And Borges and Bioy chose what they considered the best of Stevenson's essays, stories and fables, Mm. some of them quite obscure. But this book was never published, I think because of the the problems with um, Argentina's economy that it occasionally has, publishers weren't willing to take what I thought would have been a a pretty safe risk, Mm. a unique anthology. I mean, there are many books of, of, by and about Stevenson, but this anthology really is unique. uh, And... Some of Borges's ideas, uh, I think, feed in a refreshing way into how we view Stevenson. Um, Borges alludes to Stevenson at least one hundred times in his own writings, and he really he really loved Stevenson's work for sort of intellectual as well as. Um, aesthetic reasons. You know, he loved the fact that Stevenson's stories had really great plots. He loved the fact that Stevenson wrote about meaning and what fiction is and mm. how we go about writing good stories. Um, so Borges, he was quite strongly influenced by some of Stevenson's essays. And in fact, Borges's stories are kind of like essays themselves, but in very, but given in very entertaining manners. Borges, I think, saw a kind of soulmate in in Stevenson and um, there are so many strange little allusions to Stevenson in in Borges' work. Uh, It's quite exciting to bring this this book into existence. And how did you find out about this anthology that was never published? Well, a professor from the University of Pittsburgh called Professor Daniel Balderston wrote an essay in which he discussed the fact that... uh, an Argentine uh, academic and writer called Ernesto Montequin found in Bioy's estate, in the papers, the actual paper on which 
Borges and Bioy sketched out this anthology and they wrote down the, the essays, the stories and the fables that they chose for this anthology. Mm. And when I read this essay, I really wanted to bring this book into existence because I thought it would shed new light on Stevenson mm -hmm. as well as showing a very tangible connection we don't appreciate between Argentina's incredible literary heritage and Scotland's mm -hmm. literary heritage. And so I wrote Professor Balderston to, to seek uh, professional sort of permission, but also to get his personal blessing for this to go ahead, which he very graciously gave. I went to Argentina to uh, research this book and I met Ernesto Montequin and I had the privilege also of meeting Borges's widow, Maria Kodama. And gradually this, this book fell into place. And some of Borges's theories of literature are pretty outlandish, but very creative and exciting. For example, he proves, he demonstrates uh, in a famous piece he wrote called Kafka and his precursors. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. He proved that writers, <laughs> I know how crazy this sounds, writers create their own predecessors. Mm -hmm. In other words, writers influence uh, writers You're who died born. before they were born. Mm. So using that same idea, I am suggesting in my introduction to this anthology that if we read Stevenson through a Borgesian prism, we get a whole new Stevenson, one that's absolutely more, more exciting than ever. And we start to see correspondences between the work of this great Scottish poet and novelist and this Argentine 20th century metafictional genius, Borges. And it's an intriguing connection that I think adds extra value to both cultures, Argentina's and Scotland's. Mm -hmm. So I think it's quite an important book. I, I take no credit. But if you look at Borges, Borges is a household name in the world of literature, especially Spanish literature. Stevenson is a household name. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been discussing Jekyll and Hyde. For Jekyll and Hyde to become a phrase everybody understands mm -hmm. yeah. throughout the world, basically, Wow, I mean, how many writers achieve anything of that order? You know, mm. Shakespeare, <laughs> Canon does, but very few writers create characters or ideas uh, that have such life that they, they themselves become yeah. household phrases. Mm. It's a pretty amazing achievement. Because mm. uh, I didn't realise as well that Stevenson kind of fell out of favour a little bit. Yeah, this happens sometimes with writers. Um, I think it was Richard Judy who pointed out that Stevenson's star was in the ascendant as a as a writer, but he really became very famous as a result of Jekyll and Hyde. And he was a really sort of fashionable kind of writer. He was in demand. He became rich. Mm. And uh, this was probably very important to Stevenson because he came from a family of engineers. He, he went to Edinburgh University and he, he studied law, but he didn't practice law. Mm. Uh, so I, I suppose there was some redemption in the fact that he became such a famous writer. Now, because he died so young in his, what was he, 44, I think, when he yeah. died, he then had this period of being a, a sort of, um, not a cult figure, but the fact that he, he was seen as this kind of bohemian mm. figure and he was, he, was, uh, he was as famous in the immediate years after his death as, as, as ever, perhaps more so. 
But then he fell really out of favour and critics such as Leonard Wolf, uh, there are two Leonard Wolves. <laughs> One is Leonard Wolf, the, the, the husband of Virginia Wolf, who, yeah. who wrote some really disparaging things about Stevenson's work. The other is a really terrific... Uh, editor called Leonard Wolf with with one O not two, who has um, edited the essential Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, <laughs> which is the definitive annotated edition, which I, I highly recommend. Uh, but also some of Stevenson's compatriots, such as Edwin Muir, were ve- wrote yeah. quite nasty things about about um, Stevenson yeah, and his work. You mentioned them in the in your introduction. I yeah. was quite stunned when I when I read them. You kind yeah. of think, what's going on there? It sounds it almost personal. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that it's a little bit to do with the um, variety of genres in which Stevenson wrote, and I, that he just that his sort of work, body of work is quite fragmented, his, and it's quite hard to point to sort of a big novel or a big poem or something like that. I I don't know. I'm. It, I, th- I think it's partly because um, he. Some people encounter him in childhood, and that gives them mm-hmm. a real nostalgia for him. But it also might mean that they regard him as a children's author. Yeah, but he was so much more than that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, Edwin Muir wrote in 1931, uh, Stevenson is still read by the vulgar, <laughs> but he has joined the band of writers on whom, by tacit consent, the serious critics have nothing to say. Now, this is nonsense. Yeah. This is nonsense. And he, Stevenson is coming back into favour. I find, while I was researching Robert Louis Stevenson, an anthology... I would quite often read books by, um, shall we say, serious critics uh, <laughs> who were equally sniffy about Stevenson while being... So they were, in other words, dismissing the high regard, the extremely high regard in which Borges held Stevenson mm. and assuming something about Stevenson which I think is, is not true. Um, Borges said, from childhood onwards, Stevenson has been for me one of the forms of happiness. Mm-hmm. So a life-enhancing writer, somebody yeah. who has things to say about life. Yes, he can be very entertaining. Kidnapped, I think, is a brilliant action-adventure mm. novel. But in something like Jekyll and Hyde, he is examining uh, sometimes quite unpalatable truths about what it means to be human. Mm. But that's a valuable kind of writing. That's 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 of of great value to world literature and um, if you have writers of of the calibre of Borges and Casares holding Stevenson in such high esteem then perhaps it's no wonder that the the pendulum is swinging back now and Stevenson is coming back into favour and sometimes it's as a result of some of his work is is more challenging than others and Borges wrote these kind of fabulous Stories blending fact and fiction and considering what reality is. And Stevenson wrote some fables which are quite interestingly um, compelling and difficult because they don't yield to easy meaning. Mm. They're very... He didn't want to write the kind of moralising mm. fable or this sort of fairly fairly simple, understandable fable that Aesop created, for example, his fables are much, much more nuanced and difficult. And Borges loved these. And so in this anthology, quite a few of these, and I think they're very, very readable. They're very short, but dense. Mm. 
Borges loved them and I love them, but uh, they're, they're not simplistic. Uh, Fanny Osborne, Stevenson's wife, hated them. She hated <laughs> them. And I think that's one reason they weren't published until after Stevenson died. Um, I think maybe she, she perhaps dissuaded him, but he was keen to publish them. I think Stevenson himself uh, kind of enjoyed doing this kind of writing that was maybe a little bit unpredictable and but rich and deep and and she seems to be someone who was more wedded to sort of paradigms yeah um, and he was more interested in breaking them I think that's right and I think that that fits with Hogg who we discussed mm. in our last episode as well well Hogg you know? was a, Hogg like was the, an influence on Stevenson yeah. I mean and there's just this, this problem the problem of these really metafictional writers from Scotland in the 19th century yeah, yeah. who massively fell out of favour yeah but like, this really tap into your sort of late 20th century moment yeah like, rediscovered then um, I mean I mean I think this this idea of metafictionality in Hogg in Stevenson in mm. Borges mm-hmm. I felt that that gave me permission to to have the resolve to write a method actor's guide to Jekyll and Hyde rather yeah. than being overly intimidated mm. so can I just go can you go back to what you said at the beginning about um uh, the method actor's guide being about multiplicity mm. and unity there is Borges um, also not just wedded to binaries. I mean, I think in, oh, what, you yes, were, in yes. what you were just saying is, you you know, I think you just produced a version of Stevenson that is more nuanced than a binary. But I uh, agree with you that, you know, there are a lot of binaries in Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. But Borges and binaries, how does that work? Uh, yeah, he, um, Borges, Borges he, he made a lot of binaries. For example, he wrote a famous piece called Borges and I, where he sort of he looks at the the, the, the public persona that he had as a as a world famous author yes. and the guy who was actually there drinking coffee, going for walks, and sitting down and writing. And he's well, yeah. which one of them is writing this? Right. <laughs> um, in some of his stories collections, there are dualities in every story, mm-hmm. but Borges. Borges, in some of his other crazy ideas, to which I subscribe fully, are when you read Shakespeare, you pretty much become Shakespeare while you're reading it. <laughs> so I thought, yes, when you read Stevenson, you become Stevenson. He maintained, Borges did, that all writers ultimately are the same person. Everybody's writing the same big, huge book. Uh, he agreed with, was it Schopenhauer, I think, who said that... Um, if life is like reading a book, dreaming is skimming through the pages. <laughs> uh, but Borges, in saying, Borges went further than to say that all writers ultimately are the same writer. Yeah. He said, and this is what some, I, I, I'm imagining some people listening to this will disagree, but I agree. Borges said, and that writer is nobody. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. See, I became a method reader while I was reading <laughs> Method Actors Guide to Jekyll and Hyde. I, whereas I felt as if I was becoming Robert Good. <laughs> while I was reading it. And it, was, it wasn't very nice because I felt the same reading um, Emma Tennant's Hogg uh, reimagining The Bad Sister. That was a really claustrophobic, intense book to read as well and sometimes especially when it's first person and there is a bit of a psychological (laughs) breakdown I I can find it really difficult but that's that's because you're a human being and you've got Mm. empathy Mm. so that's why empathy is important as a writer you've got to be able to 
uh, imagine what it what it's like to be a diverse group of people or animals or objects. (laughs) What is it like to be a disgruntled bus stop? Um, (laughs) I shall write a poem from that perspective. Um, uh, So, yes, I think that's a sign of successful writing if you get so immersed within it because what what makes a narrative worth reading or worth hearing is it's got to be emotionally engaging and if you can't engage with the characters then for me that's that's not a book that I'm going to be tempted to read. But another interesting thing Borg has said was that good readers are as rare as, if not rarer than, good writers. <laughs> so thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, I'm afraid we're, we're staying with the dark side um, for next uh, the next episodes where we're delving deep into crime fiction. Um, September is the month where we celebrate a lot of uh, crime fiction up here in Scotland um, with the uh, Bloody Scotland Festival. So we're going to look at Ian Rankin, who's pretty much our Lord God Mayor of crime fiction at the moment. Um, we're not going to do the whole Rebus series. We've picked to um, spotlight in particular Black and Blue, which is the Rebus book that really brought the series into much wider prominence and we'll also be talking to polygon's very own denzel merrick who writes a just fantastic detective series set in rural argyle we'll be chatting to him about all things dci daily and ds scott yes join us then cheerio (laughs)